This morning we are in Titus 3. You'll remember last week that I read 1 through 8 and tried to set it up for you because it really goes together well that way. But the way that our worship service breaks out, I didn't want to give just a summary treatment over all these things. And so we spent the lion's share of our time last week in 1 through 3. Well, this week we're going to try and finish out. We're going to do 4 through 8. But, but I want to start in verse 3. We're going to talk briefly about that, and then we're going to move through 4 through 8. So let me, let me read for you, ask you to follow along. In Titus 3, starting in verse 3, we're going to read through verse 8. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. As we enter into this passage, I recognize that that there is something standing in our way to ready understanding and application of this text. Now, this is kind of where I've been at this week thinking over this text and reading through it and and really just trying to get it in my mind what's happening here. Because 4 through 8 lays down some really, really heavy theology. I mean, it it, it does. He's going through and he's unpacking a number of things. And so you read regeneration, you read renewal of the Holy Spirit, and your mind just goes, boom! And you say, oh, please, please, take it easy. Those are a lot of really big R words. Could you take it easy on me? We're not ready for this yet. We're not ready for this yet. You see, because there's something that in in our minds is separating us from even moving into this text because it is so contrary to our experience. The things we read here are so incredibly contrary to our experience, are so incredibly contrary to just the the ins and outs of life. Paul starts in verse 3, and he characterizes us in a way that many of us don't like to think about. He starts off and he says, we were once. And he goes through and he describes a people that is not attractive. Like these aren't good looking people. If you found somebody on match.com that was described like this, you skip their profile. You're like, I didn't know those things existed. Yeah, like if you find people like this and walk up to you and say, Glenn, I want to be your friend. You say, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. You say, well, I hate people. People hate me. Glenn says, why would I want to be your friend? Like, I mean, so these things, we don't, we don't go after these things. We don't like these things. We don't like to think about these things. It's so contrary to our experience in everything. You want to go out and you want to buy a car. You go to the car dealership. You go to, you go to CarMax, wherever you go. You don't walk up and say, you got a beater. You got a car that doesn't really run, maybe only has three tires. You don't do that, do you? You want something that works. You want something that functions. Some of you want something you're going to pay on for 50 years. You want something that works well. You don't do this for homes. You don't walk into a neighborhood and say, there's a decent chance I get shot here. I wonder if they have anything open. 
You don't, when you go looking for a girlfriend, say, man, where's the ugliest woman out there? I mean, some of you, that's, you, need to, you need to lower your expectations, but that's not what you do. You don't just go out and say, I wonder where some really homely girls are. You're looking for a spouse, you don't go out and say, I wonder where a real test case is for me. I wonder where somebody is out there that I can just go out and make them beautiful. We look for people we find attractive. We look for people that, that they, they resonate with us, we resonate with them. There's some commonality there. That's why this is so amazing. Everything we go out and do, whether we're looking for a home, we're looking for friends, we're finding people that, that we find something good in them, something valuable in them. In cars and homes and all of these things, we're finding things with value, with, with merit. We're saying, I like the way this looks. I'd like to bring it into my own life. And when we read the description of the way that we used to be in verse 3, we find none of those things are true. None of those things are true. He says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our, ways, passing our days away in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul sums it up in Romans 6. He says, you were dead. He says, you were dead. There was no life in you. But even in death, we struggle with this. We have cleaned up death. Death for us is something that we can handle. It's something we can avoid. You say, oh, he's just a little dead. They've got a pill for that. He's just a little bit dead. Well, you know, we'll we'll get in there. We'll give him CPR. We'll get those paddles. We'll rub them together. And we'll say, clear! And we'll hit him. And his heart will start again and everything will be fine. Death is something we've prettied up. Now, what Paul talks about when he's talking about death, and this is what I want you to imagine. This is what I want you to see yourself as, okay? Verse 3. You're a five-day-old corpse whose bowels have released. The maggots are on you and in you, and nobody can stand to come anywhere near you. You be dead. They don't make a pill. They don't make a cream. They don't make a paddle that's going to change you. This is where God starts with. This, in essence, is his raw material. And he changes everything. That's why this is amazing. So many of us have forgotten our former way of existence. You've put it out of your mind and you've imagined yourself as being a pretty good and decent person and a pretty good catch for God. We've prettied up life before Christ. And you say, you know what? God really got something when he got me. He's really lucky. You were dead. I was dead. I was dead in my trespasses. I was rotting necrotic flesh and and the stench of my deadness, the stench of my sin was repulsive. That's why this is so amazing. In that state, in that state of utter disgustingness, God came in. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, even while you were dead in your sin, even while you were lost and, 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 and pursuing your own passions and hated by others and hating other people, God stepped into the middle of that. He changed everything about you. Everything about you was, was fundamentally altered. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Psalm 34, 8. 
The psalmist writes, and he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. The psalmist, in some sense, invites us into this sensory observation of God and who he is. He says, taste and see. And so we visualize, we see God before us, we understand who he is, and we come into experience. And by our experience as Christians, we can testify that God is good, even when we're not. God was ultimately best to us in salvation that when we were lost and dead and repulsive and driving people away by the stench of our necrotic flesh, he came near to us in salvation. Do you catch the miracle that happened there? I've been asked numerous times in recent weeks, Matt, do you believe that miracles still happen? I say, are you kidding me? We serve a God who makes dead men and women alive to the gospel. Every single person who comes to Faith and salvation in Jesus Christ is evidence of the miraculous. You want to be healed from a disease? The disease he healed you from is the stench and stain of death. He took dead flesh and made it alive. He took you and gave you a new heart and a new spirit and calls you to serve him. But look at this. The text tells us here that it is the goodness and the loving kindness of God. Now, the, I think the ESV which is my go-to translation. I think the ESV bungles this a little bit. I don't really like the way they rendered loving kindness. If you flip over to the New American, if some of y'all have that, you're gonna read it. It says, the goodness and love of humanity. Love of humanity. The ESV softens this a little bit. But the word coming in the original is a compound word, and it means love and humanity, and they throw them together in this one word. Now, when we take it and we understand it like that, we see God's goodness showing up. We see his love for humanity showing up. And it should trigger in your mind as we've been going through this. You think, aha, I read something really similar to this already in Titus. Look up at Titus 2.11. Look up at Titus 2.11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We read that the grace of God showed up, it found us, we were lost, it appeared, it showed up, we heard the gospel, we got saved. We we were radically changed, we were transformed, and that's what we read here. He says, when the goodness and loving kindness, when the love of humanity showed up in the person of Jesus Christ, everything changed. Our lives hinge on how we respond to the appearance of the Savior. There is a period in our lives before Christ and a period in our lives after we encounter Christ and they hinge on how you decide. And so on the one side you say, well, he appeared, you know, it's, I just just can't handle all that Jesus stuff. I read this week, Timothy Keller, he said, you either kill him or crown him. There is no indifference as it comes to Jesus. You either crown Jesus as Lord of your life or you kill him and you push him away. You cannot be indifferent as it comes to Jesus. And Paul tells us here that something has changed. Now look, let's look at the basis of what happens. He says he appears and we get into verse five and he says he saved us. God shows up in the person of Jesus and he finds you in a horrible state. He finds you not on your best hair day, right? Some of you are bald, and so hair days aren't a big deal for you. But he finds you when everything's going wrong, when nothing is right. And in the midst of all of these things, he saves you. That 
That, friends, is a tremendous display of love. Now, look, some of you still think he saved me, but it's because I was doing such a good job. It's because I had, I had things headed in the right direction. Now, Matt, I didn't have everything worked out, but by and large, we were headed in the right way. We were headed in the right way. No, look, look what Paul says here. It's almost like he anticipated your response. Paul says here, he says, no, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. You didn't do anything. You didn't do anything. It's not because you were particularly good or pretty or or athletically inclined. All the reasons people value you in your life today, those things did not exist for you. Those things did not exist for you. And that's so strange for us. So many of us find ourselves and in, in we, we, we value people, right? You, you base your friendships to a certain degree on utility. You find people that are useful for you. You find people that they, they, they scratch an itch in you for, for some reason and so you need help with money, you go see a CPA that, that, that's kind to you. You need help with, with some type of legal problems. You, 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 you find a friend that maybe didn't quite fell all the way out of law school. We value people based on, on their utility, and we think people value us based on our utility, our usefulness. But when we come to this text, Paul tells us that we were rubbish. He tells us that we were trash, that there was nothing useful in us, all the things that we were trying to do. They weren't amounting to anything. They weren't righteous deeds. They weren't good things that we were doing. Christ comes in and he saves you in the midst of that. This is the gospel. Not that we were good, but that he was good to us. This is the gospel. Not that we did good things, but he came in and found us in the midst of selfishness and the worst tantrum of our lives. And he saved us anyway. He comes in and he saves you, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God's kindness, his love, his love for humanity was poured out on us. And it saved you. This is great news. Some of you are wondering, how do you tell your family members about Jesus? This is it. They don't need to get their lives straight. They don't need to get their finances in order. They need to crown him in their lives. They need to recognize that they're never going to do enough things right. They're never going to get enough things set. But Jesus comes in. He saves them in the midst of these struggles. Not because of good things. Now look at this. He goes on. Last part of verse 5. He says, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saved us by the washing of of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is, this is interesting. This sounds theological, right? He's using big words, but, but as we get into it, this is the understanding. The Holy Spirit comes in, he takes you, you have the stain of sin in your life. Sin stains you. Imagine a garment, a white garment that is plunged into red Kool-Aid. And it is stained, and anybody that's ever done anything with red Kool-Aid knows, you know, you can go to Target, you need to buy a new garment. It's not coming out. He takes that. He takes you in your sinfulness. He takes you with this stain of sin in your life, and he scrubs you clean. The washing of regeneration, he makes you clean. 
you didn't do that. You didn't clean yourself up. He comes into your life, friend, and he cleans even those things that you didn't realize you were doing. He makes you sparkle. He makes you pristine. The text tells us that the Holy Spirit comes in and offers us renewal. He says the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember back to Genesis when Adam was made? God took Adam out of the dirt. He formed him, he made him, and then he breathed life into him. Do you remember that story there in Genesis? He made him alive. And Adam had perfect harmony with God. And then as the story goes, Adam and Eve come along and they sin and they get kicked out of the garden and we've been living under the stain of original sin. Because Adam sinned, all of humanity since Adam is lost in sin. Do you understand that? We're all sinners. We're all lost. We all have the stain of sin in our lives. So he comes in. He cleans you up. And then he makes you anew. This idea of renewal, as he created Adam, he is recreating you. Ezekiel said it this way. He says, I will give them a new heart. He's come into your life. He's come into my life. He's taken my dead heart and he's infused life into it. He has remade a heart that no longer just beats for me. It doesn't beat for my selfish desires, but it beats for him. And he's placed this same heart inside each and every man and woman and child that cries out to Jesus for forgiveness and for salvation. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now look at this. Some of you are tempted to believe that this salvation in you only just got you across the line. As if salvation were on the other side of this pulpit and some of you are just kind of right here with one foot in salvation and the rest of you is over here and is stuck there. And you think, oh, pastor, you, just, you don't know me. You don't know all the things that went on in my life. I, I, I mean, Matt, it's almost like the Holy Spirit got a hold of me and he scrubbed and scrubbed and he rubbed a hole right in me. You don't realize how, how dirty, how, how destitute I was, how repugnant I was. You don't know my former way of existence in my life. You know, I find it over and over again as I read the Bible. Through the choices of Jesus and the choices of God, he chose people that were terrible. He chose the apostle Paul who was breathing murderous threats against Christianity. Paul was so zealous for the persecution and the death of Christians that he would hold the coats, that he would send out letters. He would find believers in other towns and try and go there so that they too might be put to death. God moved in his heart and called him to salvation. God took a murderer and he saved him. As we look across the room, as you think in your own life, think God took an idolater. God took an adulterer. God took a fornicator. God took a liar. God took a thief. God took people who are so prideful in their own hearts. And he put that to death. He totally put that to death. He washed you, he removed the stain, he recreated you. And now we read here in verse six that this same Holy Spirit poured 
out in us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. It's not that he just gave you a little sprinkle. It's not that he just cleaned you up enough to make you presentable. He poured out in you richly. Imagine if I had a cup here. So many of you are doing this ice bucket challenge. Imagine if in that ice bucket at the bottom you were trying to catch all of that in a Dixie cup, okay? And so you've got this little, little Dixie cup and you're trying to catch all of that and it's just pouring over you and it's pouring all the way over that cup and it's spilling all the way over that cup. There's no way that cup can contain all of it. It's the same with you and me. Holy Spirit comes into your life, he finds you, and he pours out on you richly. You can't contain the forgiveness of God. You can't be too dirty, too messed up, that he can't fix you, make you alive when you were once dead, make you anew to give you a new heart that beats for him and him only. And this is how he chose to do it. The passage tells us that the Holy Spirit was the one pouring it, pouring it out on us, but he says he chose to do it through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we recognize in that that God poured out his wrath, his judgment on Jesus. That all the sins that, that, that you committed, all the sins I committed, all the sins that as you look at your children and your grandchildren and those people around you, all the sins that they committed were poured out, were met on Jesus. The wrath of God was poured out on him. You were spared. As you cry out to Jesus in salvation, you were spared. Verse seven. This is the so what of it. He says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Jesus is put to death. God moves and he raises him from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father on high. And this is what we get. We're made heirs. We're written into the will. We're written into the promise. Our former way of life and existence when we were building up and we're storing up for ourselves wrath and punishment and hell have been exchanged. And now, in exchange for those promises, we receive hope and eternity and life. And we receive those things in Jesus. In the passage in verse 7 tells us that we have been justified by his grace. This is what it is to be justified. You are reckoned righteous. God comes into your life. He saves you in Jesus. You cry out, God, forgive me. He moves in your heart for salvation. He reckons you righteous. He looks at you. He looks at Kelly. He looks at Chase. He looks at Ben. And he says, you are righteous. That's what he declares you. So many of you struggle with sins that were in your former way of existence and these things are plaguing your minds. And you say, look, I can't be forgiven of these things. Friend, you already have. He looks at you and doesn't say, oh, you know, he was a really good guy, but he really had a rough two or three years and I'm just gonna make his life miserable for that. You love the forgiveness of Jesus for other people, but you yourself don't feel worthy of it. 
You love the forgiveness of Jesus for those people that had simple, simple, sinful lives. But you look at your own life and you say, this sin was so messy. It affected me, it affected my spouse, it affected my past spouse, it affected my children. And you say, I can't receive it. You don't get that choice. You don't get that choice. Certainly we learn from the mistakes we make in our past. The calling is to live a righteous life. But when Jesus comes in and he saves you, he doesn't leave those things hanging over your head so that you feel bad about who you were. In fact, he says to you, you were dead. Now you're alive. You're a totally different person. He has recreated you. He has renewed you. He has cleaned the stain of all these things that came before. And he declares to you, you are righteous. You're righteous. Do you believe it? Do you believe that that God looks at you and he says, friend, you're righteous? No, because so many of you don't feel worthy of it. You're not. None of us were worthy. He didn't do it because you're worthy. He didn't move to save you because you're worthy. That's what he's already established. He said, look, he didn't do this on the basis of works done by you in righteousness. He did it because of his mercy, his kindness, his love, his disposition towards you and humanity. And so he came in with his son. He poured out his wrath on Jesus. And he said to you, inasmuch as you find yourself in him, you're an heir. And as an heir, you're righteous because God can have no association with those who aren't. The church is made up of those who are righteous. And our righteousness isn't based upon rule keeping. It's not based upon how good I am at doing the right thing. It's based upon the declaration of God who looks at me and says, Matt, you are righteous. When you look in the mirror in the morning, do you look at yourself and say, I'm an heir. I'm I'm righteous. that's how God sees you. What an amazing promise. So many of us beat ourselves up and we want everybody else to beat us up too. The declaration of God as he looks at you and he says, I already poured out my wrath on my son to declare you righteous. What more punishment needs to be met out? We need to receive the righteousness of God. We need to live in the assurance of that. Because the hope and the promise is one for eternal life. We live as heirs of the promise of eternal life. And it is given to us by the great cost of the life of Jesus Christ. But look at this. He moves forward past that. He is begging us to see where we are in him begging us to recognize that it's not good works, it's not doing good stuff that got us there because it's so important that on the basis of where we are and where we were, that we live a certain way, that we do a certain thing. So having firmly established where we were, where we are, he moves forward and he says, therefore, I say this is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things, verse eight. Paul wrote to Titus, he says, you have to make them believe this. You have to make them live this. He says, so that those who have believed in God 
our belief is firmly established. It's not wavering, it's not unchanged. And in that belief, we are reckoned righteous. Those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. He draws such a hard line in this. You didn't do good works to get saved. He did a good work. He saved you. He changed your heart. He changed who you are. He has made you alive. Your old body of sin is dead. He has given you a new body, a new heart, and he comes in. And in the midst of that relationship, in the midst of that, what should be thankfulness on our parts, we should be so thankful to God. This is where my heart was last night as I was meditating on this text. I'm in there and and I'm, I'm lying down and I'm thinking through verse three. And I saw myself there. I saw my former way of life. I saw myself there. I was so moved to thankfulness, knowing that that's not my reality. That's not who I am. I am not who I once was. Many of us would do good, would do well to give time and reflection thinking that we're not who we once were. We have been made anew, we've been washed clean, we've been declared righteous. And on the basis of our current status with Jesus Christ, on the basis of these things, he calls us to devote ourselves to good works. He has purchased you at great price. You're no longer a slave to sin, but you're a slave to God and righteousness. And we serve him faithfully, lovingly, and wholeheartedly. And what he calls us to is to do good deeds. This is basically what he's saying. Act in accordance with what you are. Righteous people live righteously. Righteous people produce righteous deeds. It's not a question of whether or not you're righteous. You're in with Jesus, you're righteous. You're in with Jesus, you produce righteous deeds. Do you follow the track there? He's changed you from what you used to be. He's made you something you could never be on your own. And he calls you to live in the empowerment of that life. As a church, we should exist as a body of people who live righteously based on the declaration that that is who we are. And that righteousness should produce good deeds here and all around our community. Let me pray for us.